Good morning. It is a blessing to be with you. I want to say again a thank you to this church family for your support for our ministry our, as a missionary to our state legislature. Folks often when they ask me what I do and I tell them that, uh, that I'm a missionary to the legislature, um, uh, if I say it in a way that says to the politicians in Nashville, they often look at me with a snicker and go, oh, they need it. And then I'll go, yeah, they are human just like us. And then invariably I'll get, we all need it. It's true. And uh, so we're, we're grateful to be an extension of this church family as we work and do our ministry at the Capitol. And in an interesting connection to our church now is that this October, I'll be taking a second trip, legislator's trip to Israel. We are, we're in the process of setting up governmental meetings for them. So this will be a government expression of their office. And with that, I'll also have the privilege of taking them through the land and teaching the word of God in the places where God gave it. And I'll stay there and wait for you to arrive, and then I'll do that similar tour. And on the days in the time slot where they'll be doing governmental meetings two weeks later, we'll be doing a, a mission, a service project to bless the Jewish people. So there are still spaces open and available on the Central Bearden Israel trip. And if you have not signed up yet, uh, I welcome you and encourage you to do that. I was talking with one of our legislators this uh, past week and with um, one of our speakers, we had arranged, we have a Wednesday chapel. Then I asked him to come and speak. He's an evangelist. And uh, as we were talking after he spoke that morning, he looked at me, he said, Bill, he said, when I went with you on the legislator's trip three year, four years ago, he said, it changed my ministry and my life and my preaching forever. Has a tendency to do that. And uh, maybe as we walk through this passage this morning, you get an appreciation for how context and history and geography and all of those things bring the scripture alive. All right, someone once said to me, blessed is the man who can get his plane airborne from a short runway, which means cut down your introduction and then you have more time for your message. And I've been here for the last few weeks also as, as uh, Dr. Bibb has been speaking and sitting in the balcony listening and being a bit overwhelmed at the fact that he's taking 35, 40, 45 verse passages of scripture and delivering it in 20 minutes. And I said, Lord, I can't even do an intro in 20 minutes. But we'll do our best because we have the story of Mary, Martha, and the raising of Lazarus this morning, an exciting and interesting passage. And it's 44 verses long. So I was born and raised in Michigan, did my Bible college and seminary training in Chattanooga. My wife is a Tri-Cities gal from East Tennessee, so I'm kind of grandfathered in. But when I have these experiences, I have to use my Yankee tongue and talk fast. So we'll do what we can. All right. Knowing, of course, that this passage is for the fifth Sunday of Lent, that time that so masterfully in musical worship this morning, we 
we sang and we prayed through musical prayer is what it is about the reality that our life is filled with suffering and yet Jesus walks through it. He suffers with us. He enables us. He strengthens us. And blessed be his name. And that's really the message of the raising of Lazarus. So let's hear the story again. And I'm getting used to this. I've got a clicker. So there we go. We're going to talk about resurrection life for Jesus' people. And here's our first section of scripture. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness is not, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You get the irony of that? Let's talk about it just for a minute. The man Lazarus, it's not actually his name in Hebrew. It's not what they called him back then. His sisters would have called him Lazar. If you ever saw a fiddler on the roof, he's got a son-in-law who calls him Lazar. Same name. And Lazar is short for the Hebrew name Eliezer. Like, my name is William, but when you speak to me, you call me Bill. That's my nickname. Lazar was short for Eliezer. Here's what's interesting about this passage. You know what Eliezer means in Hebrew? Well, I'll tell it to you in English. It means the Lord, or the God, the Lord is my help. And here, as they send word to Jesus, he hears the news that he's ill, and Jesus' answer is, sure, I'll be there real soon. Give me a couple of days. I read someone this week, and they said, this is not a passage you read at first blush and you go scrambling for your hymnal to sing what a friend we have in Jesus. So it's interesting to think about this fact that right here from the beginning, John puts some interesting elements into the telling of the story. Interesting that here he immediately shares with us that this is a family with whom Jesus shares a deep love and connection with. And then he tells the story about the anointing uh, of Mary. Here's, so one of the things I learned years ago, I've been to Israel now 20 plus times. And one of the things I learned early on was not so much that I didn't read my Bible enough, although anybody who thinks you've read the Bible enough, prayer enough, no, we can guilt all day long on that. That's certainly true. Here's the lesson I learned. I often didn't read it very well. I didn't, I, I glossed over some of the things that should have been obvious questions. And, and here's one of those. Why does John start right at the beginning here mentioning the fact that this was the Mary who anointed his feet with oil? Because chronologically, that hadn't even happened yet in chapter 11. 
that doesn't happen until chapter 12, probably three weeks later. So you have to ask yourself the obvious question, or maybe not so obvious question, why does he put it here? And my sense is that he puts it here at the beginning because he's intending to give us information that helps us to understand this deep love connection that Jesus shares with them and the sense that there is a relationship here that we are supposed to ultimately, as the story unfolds, we're supposed to enter into and he wants to draw us in very early in the process. So that as the story unfolds and there's these seeming contradictions and there's difficulties and there's struggles, not the least of which he immediately goes on to say, sure, I'll come help you in your peril in two days. It is supposed to catch us up quick and help us to pay attention. So in doing so, by presenting that way, we'll get a glimpse of both the humanity and the deity of Jesus. So let's continue. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, He stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So again, why do you think Jesus waited two days to answer the call for help? You see, in the chapter just preceding, Jesus had been speaking up in the temple area, and when he spoke, the Judean leaders, mostly Sadducees, a few of the Pharisees, they got very upset with what he was teaching, with what he said, and they picked up stones to stone him. And so he thought better, this wasn't his time, and so he left. And when he left, as typical, this is exact King David had done when his son Absalom was after him, he leaves Jerusalem, he goes immediately to the east, and literally there, within about a thousand feet of the, of the pinnacle of that mountain, about a thousand feet, the rain shadow stops and the rain starts to drop off and it becomes immediately a barren wilderness. And from there at the top of the mountain at 3,000 feet, you now walk down the Jericho Road, a very treacherous narrow road, and you go all the way to the bottom to about 1,200 feet below sea level at the Jordan River, and you've had a 4,000-foot uh, drop in about 10 to 13 miles, and it's treacherous, and it's barren, and people can't find you, and then Jesus goes down there, he crosses the Jordan River, and he hangs out in an area which today is known as the baptismal place of John. But what he did is he went from Judea to Perea, where those authorities no longer had jurisdiction. 
And he hangs out there. No one really knows where he and his disciples are. And they've retreated. And they've gotten away. And it's down there where he is spending time that now they have to track him down and they have to send word to him. And so here, as that happens, by the time he gets the news about Lazarus, Lazarus has already died. That's a day. And now he waits two. That's three days. And now he's going to have this walk back up that mountain, and that's a day. And so he waits till the fourth day to arrive. And so again, why does he do that? And for that matter, when he's talking to them here, to the disciples, before he makes that trek back up the mountain, he, he tells them this thing about 12 hours in a day. And if you read that, you go, that's a little muddled. What in the world is that about? So let's talk about that just for a minute. A couple of insights might help us here in this. First of all, in Jesus' day, it was believed that at death, the spirit of a person hovered around for three days before finally leaving the body. And the question is, what, were they superstitious? Is that what happened? I, I don't know what happened. I know this, Jesus waited until the fourth day before he went back. Does that mean Jesus believed that? I don't know. It wasn't the point. It was the point that Jesus lived into their expectation. What did those people think in that day with what was going on? And oftentimes that is a key to our understanding of Jesus' activity or his instruction. And so when Jesus delayed, he ensured that they will understand, <clears throat> excuse me, that Lazarus rose from the dead, not simply from a coma. And in doing so, the power of God and preparing them for his own death and resurrection were going to be on full display. And we're not supposed to miss that. And then secondly, Jesus used a metaphor here to give courage to his disciples. He was saying that his time was not yet here. And because he had already just said to them that he's the light of the world. And when night comes, no man can work. And so he's saying here, listen, there's still light in the day. And so don't be afraid to go up there with me because there's still day. I still have kingdom work to do. And my time is not going to come until God decides it's time. We're safe in the Father's hand. That's like your life and my life. Sometimes things happen we don't understand. Difficulties we can't even imagine. We, we sang the song this morning, Blessed Be the Name. And I sat there, or I stood there, tears coming down my face as I remember the day I was standing in a church and it was the last Sunday I'd be with them and it was filled with all kinds of pain and difficulty. And I remember standing there and our worship leader had that song sung and I stood there and said, Lord, blessed be your name in suffering and in victory. He, here, immediately following Jesus' instruction here, Thomas, called the twin, says, okay, I'm all in on Jesus, and if he wants to die, I'll die. Kind of interesting to have it here, that expression of strong faith with Thomas, isn't it? Because after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, what do we end up calling Thomas? Doubting Thomas. 
You see, it's really interesting. Thomas believed, but for him, it was more than knowledge. He put his faith into action. We call that trust. It's an active faith. That's more an understanding of Jewish understanding of faith than anything we've got. Because did you know in Hebrew, there is no word for faith? Only a word for faithful. Because in their understanding, it wasn't so much what you believed, it was what you acted on. And here's Thomas, and he acted on it. And so here is our lesson for, uh, for Jesus' people. That Thomas, the one who was willing to act, no matter what the risk or the price that was required, He helps us understand that Jesus' people follow a master who sometimes leads them into difficulty. But they follow anyway because he leads them forward. You see, Jesus doesn't require flawless followers. Thomas was certainly not that. He just requires willing ones. And if this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us that Jesus is our source and he's our life and he will see us through. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, and Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning the brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. It's interesting, again, if you read carefully, you'll notice that Jesus says two things. Not one, but two. I am the resurrection and the life, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's a little bit of an awkward construction if you read it slowly and you don't spiritualize it and say, yeah, when I die, I get raised to life if I believe. It's true. I don't think that's all that Jesus is saying here. There's so much more hope for us here. You see, the Messiah who through his own death and resurrection eventually affects for us all a resurrection is therefore a source of life both for the dead and the living. In the future, yes, but here and now. You see, eternal life isn't something simply for after death. It is to give true and meaningful life now to all who believe. Here's what a scholar friend of mine, Dr. Lois Verberg, says about the Jewish understanding of eternal life in Jesus' day as recorded in the Talmud. It may help us understand a little better his words. This is what she says. In the Talmud from the first few hundred years after Christ, there are several references to the rabbinic concept of Haye Olam. Can you say that? Haye Olam. Good. Now you know some Hebrew. Free. All right. 
That means eternal life, or often it was contrasted with Haye Sha'ah. I should mention here that oftentimes the rabbis, in order to articulate their positions or help the people understand what they did believe, they would often teach it in a way that there was a contrast. So if this is righteousness, this is evil. So if you want to keep the name of God sacred, this is how you keep it sacred by understanding what it means to desecrate the name. Same principle going on here. So Hayesha'ah means fleeting life or earthly life. Usually they didn't speak of one as before death and the other after death. Rather, Hayeolam was lasting life. And it referred to living a life focused on matters of eternal importance. Living now as if you were living for eternity. In contrast, Hayesha'ah was to live a life that was only concerned about the short-term material needs of today. Making money, working, making money, eating, etc. See, Jesus wants this family and that crowd to understand that when it came for him to die, that they would not be left without purpose or meaning and strength to persevere under suffering. He wasn't only giving them life after death, but abundant life now if they live a true connection with him through active faith or trust. She caused us to stop and ask ourselves, what are we truly living for? At the same time, that is more fully the gospel than offering an escape from hell or eternal punishment. I have sons that are in their 20s and early 30s. And they have been around this church world an awful lot and they have been in a secular world with 20-somethings and 30-somethings for a while. And, and they talk to me about the reality that there is a lot of incongruence through the way that we communicate our gospel and the way people hear it. Maybe it's because our gospel's been truncated and we say, when we want to share our faith, if you died right now, are you 100% sure that when you die, you go to heaven? And then we share the four spiritual laws and wonder why after somebody responds to escaping the fires of hell and getting their ticket to heaven, why they don't follow up with obedience. Maybe it's because in the presenting of our gospel, we've cut it in half. Because Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And so often I am walking through in my own mind this grid of saying, when I present the truth of God's word to people in personal conversation as well as in a pulpit, is my gospel loaded with this is the difference Christ makes for you today? Because that's the hope people are looking for. So we press on. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. 
supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Exactly the same thing that Martha said. I'm not sure that we read Mary and Martha correctly when we assume Mary was the spiritual one and Martha was not because she was busy expressing hospitality. These two said the same thing. It was actually Martha who got to hear those words, I'm the resurrection and the life. So when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? When verse 35 tells us Jesus wept, it's more than our favorite memory verse because it's the shortest one in the Bible. It's actually filled with meaning and true emotion. In fact, this is a gut-wrenching week for Mary and Martha and watching. Do you ever think about this? They, they watched the ebbing away of the life of their brother to death. And excuse me for saying so, it was probably no walk in the park for Lazarus. Ever think about what it meant for Lazarus? None of us want to die. There was Lazarus. He went through it. And so... When Jesus goes through this process, there is here for us another help in this story from the Lenten focus. Jesus knew that the Father had guided him to do this miraculous work among the family and friends. And he knew that the power that worked in him and through him and what it would accomplish. And so his tears were for the pain and the suffering that were gonna be required in this family in order that the glory of God be revealed. Jesus wept not for himself, but for the suffering of those who are being used for the glory of God. Jesus loved them and felt their pain and their loss and the consequence of living godly lives in this present evil age. He genuinely hurt for them and they loved him regardless of the outcome that at this point in the story, they did not know. They simply believed and trusted him even when they could not see the outcome. I think the application for our lives is obvious. What about us? You see, that's who Jesus' people are. Jesus' people love and trust the master when it hurts and when they're happy, when life is uncertain, and when it's undeniably victorious. And they were gonna experience the range of those realities. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes to her. 
sorry, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I was reading this week, actually watching a piece from a teaching on this by N.T. Wright. And he suggested that this prayer uh, that he prayed to the Father, I knew that you heard me, was because he had, must have prayed earlier that when they opened the tomb after four days, that God would stop the stink. I didn't see that in this. Just going to say that. But I do believe that when he did this, he was saying it so that we would get the ultimate point. That this was not done to glorify Jesus as a miracle worker, but to glorify the God of the universe who is and who works in time and history and does and will work all things for his purposes, including Lazarus' death and resurrection, Jesus' own death and resurrection, and finally, our life and eventual death and our resurrection as well. We are not alone in life and death, and they were to get the lesson that they wouldn't be either when they would see Jesus die in a few weeks from then. They were to remember this lesson that their hope was not done. He was not done. Their resurrection was secure. There are endless insights and applications that could be made from every section of this account. These were just a few. But Jesus' people are those who, because of the certainty of Jesus' passion and resurrection, live for what matters eternally in the here and now. They're not just born again. Sometimes that terminology can get captured by our tradition. I would suggest that a better terminology, a better translation, more consistent with the Hebrew understanding, was that they are born from above. And they live for more than the fleeting pleasures of this life. They are more fully alive in Christ than anyone who lives merely for themselves. And they use that unique creation that each of us are, that I am, that you am. <laughs> you am. You came here just to hear that one. That I am and you are. We are a unique creation. And God made us uniquely who we are so that in discovering who we are, we can most optimize the difference and influence we can make in the world together in partnership with the God of the universe. But as we do that, we partner with him to repair the world and thereby bring heaven to earth in fulfillment of the prayer that we always pray. Thy kingdom come. How does he do that? When we live that abundant life and take the best of who we are, being remade in the image of Christ, 
and share it and serve the world with people who have a need to live eternal life now because they see it in our lives. The rabbis describe this person who lives only for today as having the soul of a cow. Just as a cow stands all day long munching grass, only thinking about where the next mouthful will come from, this person focuses on daily cares and material things, not on eternal truths. Maybe that's why God didn't give us the metaphor of being cows or sheep. And Jesus had just said in chapter 10, just preceding this passage, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Through and into the valley sometimes, through suffering, through difficulty, whatever that may be in your life, Because they know his voice. And they know that he will resurrect us. And because he will, and because he did, he gives us life now. And gives us this amazing opportunity for an adventure of a lifetime. An adventure that when the world hears, tell about it, and sees us live it, They're engaged to want to be a part. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, we thank you for your word. The amazing and transcendent way that you have pieced it together and demonstrated that there is mystery in who you are and beyond us completely that you step through the veil to reveal yourself to us and to create us and invite us into this incredible journey. You've redeemed us from sin and death and you've given purpose and hope. And Father, in this moment today, I pray that each of us would search our souls and search our lives and ask, Lord, What is my life focused on? And in the middle of pain and suffering and difficulty that we would not walk away, that we would not deny, that we would lean more heavily and closely into your hope and into your son. That we might receive moment by moment the strength we need to live this adventure. We pray it in Jesus' name.